teaching tonight. So we'll be wrapping up story number 152 tonight. If you need any of our study guides, they're up here all the way up through 156. So if you don't have all the way through 156, uh, please uh, come up here uh, even after class and pick that up. And that way you will have it. Uh, also, if you are... Um, we want to make sure we get all of the notes and questions and all on the Facebook feed. So if you do have a question or a comment, uh, please text me, and that way I can get it on the feed there. And we say welcome to everybody. Welcome to everybody. We're glad that you're here. And Ed, we are praying especially for your family in that situation. So praying especially for you guys. We are in the final week. And we do have a study guide available. Uh, there are actually now 15 different pages, 15 different guides to the study guide. The final week does take up a lot of space uh, in the Bible. It takes up uh, close to half of the book of John and about a third each of Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Now, if you're watching on Facebook or YouTube, you can get this very same study guide emailed to you. Just email me, say, send me the final week study guide, and I'll be glad to send it to you. As we said, we're up to 152. We're going to try to finish 152 tonight and get into 153. We're up to the parable of the foolish and wise virgins. Now, we had a question. I love questions. We had a question. One person said, I thought those ten virgins were bridesmaids. Well, they didn't really use the term bridesmaids back then, uh, you know, 2,000 years ago. But I know what you're saying. You thought that they were part of the wedding party. And you could be right. But if we're looking at Jewish custom, they were not part of the wedding party. Let me take two minutes real quick and tell you how a Jewish wedding came about. Uh, a young man, uh, usually a little bit older than the woman, uh, would be interested and uh, uh, he would ask her uh, for her hand in marriage. If she said yes, then what he would do, he and his father would go and visit the father of the bride, and they would either pay the bridal price that day, or they would negotiate how to pay it. They might say, well, we'll pay you this much now, and this much a month from now, and this much uh, uh, two months from now. But they would uh, arrange on an agreement to the bridal payment. Then the young man would go back. As I said, the young man would normally be older than his uh, prospective bride. By the way, that agreement was legally binding. That was the agreement that Joseph had with Mary. They were betrothed. They were in agreement that they would eventually get married. Now, the young man would go back home and then build on to the side of his father's house, or in some cases, he would build above his father's house, his residence, where he and his bride will live. So they would start building. 
when the young man got to the point that the father was satisfied, okay, you've done enough, you know, the house is ready, you can go get your bride. At that moment, the young man would go and he would travel, walk, you know, probably, uh, over to where the bride lived with uh, her mom and dad. Meanwhile, the father of the groom would announce the wedding feast. The wedding feast happened at the groom's house. Back then, you know, today we usually think of the bridal's parents paying for the wedding. Not that way back 2,000 years ago. Uh, 2,000 years ago, it was the groom's family and the groom that paid for the biggest cost of the wedding. So while his son is off to go get his bride, the father is uh, making an announcement to everybody who's already RSVP'd. Okay, they've already been invited. We don't know when it's going to happen, but now guess what? It's going to happen. So come to our house to the wedding feast. So everyone invited would be at the house of the groom, which is also the parents of the groom's house, waiting for the groom to return. Now, when the groom got to the house of his bride, Either there would be just a very short ceremony there, basically a ceremony of commitment, and then he would, he would take his bride back to their new house, or if the father of the bride wanted to, he could have a dinner for the wedded couple. That is what's happening here in this story. The groom is delayed. Other words, when the disciples heard that, they're thinking, okay, uh, the father of the bride is throwing a dinner, so the groom is delayed in coming back with his bride. If the groom, if the dinner party went late, the couple could either stay at her house that night, and often they did, and then go to the groom's house the next morning, or they could go uh, late back to the groom's house. It would be up to them. You'll notice here that the ten virgins all fall asleep because they know, okay, the, the groom is late. He's probably having dinner with his, uh, what is going to be his in-laws, and uh, so he probably won't come back until tomorrow morning. Then the call comes out. Hey, the groom's coming. It's midnight. That's very late. It's midnight, but the groom is finally coming. He decided not to stay. He wants to get over to his house. So he's coming to his house. Five were prepared, and five were not prepared. In fact, uh, if you were to come up here and look at my Bible, you would see the words, be prepared be ready, be serving. That was a sermon I did a long time ago. Uh, be prepared, be ready, and be serving. Five were ready. Five were prepared. Five were ready to serve. Now, under their custom, if you did something to help the wedding party, 
you likely would be invited to the feast. And remember, the feast is not a one-day deal. The wedding feast is a long deal. Seven days, sometimes two weeks long. The wedding feast was the biggest event in, one per, in any person's life. That was their, uh, what we could say, Christmas, birthday, everything combined. That was their big day. And you wanted to be invited. Families could invite everybody in the village. They had to be selective who they invited. So they would invite maybe, maybe invite John, and I invite uh, uh, maybe Lynn, and I invite Pam, and, and uh, you know, uh, I invite Tim. But I can't invite all of you. Can't afford it. But when I'm coming back as the groom, and you do something nice to help me, I might say, Wendell, you help me. Come on in. Come on in, Wendell. You were not originally invited, but now I'm inviting you now to come on in. That is really what's happening here. Notice what happens here. Verse 10. And while they went to buy, the buy, they went out to buy. Now you're going to say, well, what kind of store would be open at midnight? Business owners lived in their business. Their business was also their house. And folks, you know, uh, if someone came down, uh, uh, maybe you're living upstairs and your business is downstairs and someone is knocking downstairs, you want to make the sale. You know, you want to sell your goods. So while the five foolish ladies were off buying extra oil, the bridegroom comes and those who were ready went in with him to the wedding and the door was shut. Afterward, the other virgins came also, saying, Lord, Lord, open to us. But he answered and said, Assuredly, I say to you, I do not know you. Turn your Bibles to Matthew 7, 23. As you're turning there, let me go ahead and read verse 13. Watch therefore, for you do not know neither the day nor the hour in which the Son of Man is coming. Remember, we've had Jesus saying, okay, here's warnings about A.D. 70, here's uh, reminders about my second coming, here's warnings about A.D. 70, uh, here's a, a warning, a, a reminder about my second coming. He wants people to be aware. You've got to get ready. I will return. There will be a second coming. Now, Matthew 7, 21. If this reminds you of the parable of the virgins. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, shall enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father in heaven. Many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in your name, cast out demons in your name, and done many wonders in your name? And then I will declare to them, notice what he says, I never knew you. The young ladies are knocking at the door. Depart, I never knew you. You who practice lawlessness. Jesus, this is his last public teaching. You know, he had spent about three years teaching in the public. And this is it. 
you know, we're almost to the end. No more public teaching. And Jesus says, I want you to be ready. Don't miss out. You know, those five foolish young ladies missed out. Don't you miss out. The parable number four in this list that he tells is the parable that reminds us, like servants entrusted with wealth. Verse 14. For the kingdom of heaven is like a man traveling to a far country who called his own servants and delivered his goods to them. To one he gave five talents, to another two, to another one. To each, what? According to his own ability. And immediately he went on a journey. Now Jesus loved to tell stories, to exaggerate a point, to help you to remember. He wanted you to remember the story. This man gives out a vast sum of money. In today's world, we have seven talents, five, two, and, well actually eight talents, five, two, and one. You take those eight talents, in today's world, if that talent was gold, it could be either gold, silver, um, could be bronze, but that was very rare, so probably either gold or silver. In gold, that would be, in today's market, about $2 million total. We're talking at extreme. Remember when Jesus told the story about the beam in the eye? You know, a log, you know, in your eye, you know, that's an extreme helps you to remember the story. So if it's gold, in today's world, that's $2 million. If it's silver, you're looking at about $400,000. We're talking about a lot of money. A lot of money. And he entrusts these people, these three servants, but it's according to what? to their own ability. God does not expect you to do more than you can do. Did you hear that? God does not expect you to do more than you can do, but He expects you to do what you can do. Always. He goes off. He comes back. The guy with five, what's happened? Well, he's went out and made five more. What does he say to him? Well done, good and faithful servant. You've been faithful over a few things. I will make you ruler over many things. Enter into the joy of your Lord. He says the same thing to the two-talent guy because he's went out and got two more talents. But what about the one-talent guy? You say, well, he's just one-talent guy. He, he, he didn't have as much ability. True, but he did have ability. He just did not use his ability. He had the ability. You remember, it was awarded to them according to their ability. And he goes out and hides his talent in the ground. Was he expecting to go back and dig it up if the master had never returned back? You know, that's often the way that people would take care of their, uh, of their money. 
Uh, we didn't, they didn't have banks like we have today. They, they did have people that dealt with money, but they didn't have a bank on every street corner like we have today. So often people would bury their money in the ground, and then they would remember, okay, they would leave a clue, you know, okay, I buried it five steps east of the big tree, you know, or, or ten steps on the other side of the, of the river. They buried it so they could go back to it. Safekeeping. The trouble is, it doesn't grow. It doesn't grow one bit. If you bury ten coins, you dig up ten coins. In this case, he buried one talent, and he digs up one talent. And what happens to this man? Verse 26. But his Lord answered and said to him, You wicked and lazy servant, you knew that I reaped where I had not sown and gathered where I had not scattered seeds. You've done wrong. You have done wrong. Take the talent from him and give it to him who has ten talents. For to everyone who has, more will be given. And he who has abundance, but from him who does not have, even what he has will be taken away and cast. Okay, now we're getting judgment here. Cast the unprofitable servant into the outer darkness. There'll be weeping and gnashing of teeth. You know, we've heard this already in this discourse. Go back to chapter 24, verse 51. And will cut him in two and appoint his portion with the hypocrites. There shall be weeping and gnashing of teeth. This is second coming. This is second coming. So then, Jesus tells what it will be like at the second coming. Judgment at the second coming. Verse 31, when the Son of Man comes in His glory and all the holy angels with Him, then He will sit on the throne of His glory. All the nations will be gathered before Him. This is, Jesus is pulling back the curtain and letting you have a preview. You know, when you go to the movies, you see those movie trailers that gives you a preview of the coming movies. Well, Jesus has given us a preview of the judgment. All nations will be gathered before Him, and He will separate them one from another as the shepherd divides his sheep from the goats. He will set the sheep on His right hand. Jewish custom. Now, I've got to apologize to my own daughter who's left-handed. And anyone out there who's left-handed. Under Jewish custom, the right hand is the honored hand. I'm sorry... Sorry, lefties, okay? The right hand is the honored hand. Guess what is the dishonored hand? The left hand. He separates the sheep from the goats. That's what they would do come shearing time. You know, they would have their sheep. They would have some goats out there too. They would separate them. They would separate them. (coughs) 
The king will say to those in his right hand, Come, you blessed of my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. Heaven is not a last minute, last second plan. God did not say, well, I'll tell you what, this Old Testament thing hasn't worked out very well. I'm going to create heaven and invite people up here. Heaven is part of God's plan from the beginning. From the beginning. Heaven. Having His children with Him in heaven. Inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry, you gave me food. I was thirsty, you gave me drink. I was a stranger, you took me in. I was naked, you clothed me. I was sick, and you visited me. I was in prison, and you came to me. Six different actions that those on the right hand had taken. But Jim, they say, uh, (laughs) fantastic Lord, but we don't remember seeing you. We don't remember seeing you. When did we do that for you? When did we do all that for you? Notice what he says to them. Verse 40, And the king will answer and say to them, Assuredly I say to you, inasmuch as you did it to one of the least of these, my brethren, you did it to me. Ladies, when you're making those little bears for the children in the hospitals, you're doing it for Jesus. You're doing it to Jesus. When uh, you do something nice, you take food to a bereaved family, you call someone up and check on them. When you pray for someone, you're doing it for Jesus. For Jesus. What did Paul say in Galatians 6 verse 10? Turn to Galatians 6 verse 10. Galatians chapter 6 verse 10. Paul says this, Let us do good to all men. By the way, the, men, the word men there means all, everybody. Okay, it's a word meaning both men and women. Okay, It means everybody. It means humankind. Let us do good to all men, but especially of the household of faith. That means if I'm down to one dollar, and a Christian needs the dollar, and a non-Christian needs the dollar, the dollar goes to the Christian. Hopefully I'm not down to my last dollar. Hopefully I can help both of them. But I have a double obligation to help my Christian brothers and sisters. But what about the goats on the left hand? On the dishonored side, okay? Once again, I apologize to my own daughter who's left-handed and all you other left-handed people. Verse 41 that he will also say to those on the left hand, Depart from me, you cursed, into the everlasting fire, prepared for the devil and his angels. It was prepared. Punishment was prepared for those who disobey. For I was hungry, gave me no food. I was thirsty, gave me no drink. I was a stranger, you did not take me in. Naked, you did not clothe me. Sick and in prison, and you did not visit me. The people on the left say, well, Lord, when did we see you? All of this, hungry, thirsty, naked, in prison. And did not minister to you. 
then he will answer to them, Assuredly, I say to you, inasmuch as you did not do it to one of the least of these, you did not do it to me. And these will go away into everlasting punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. You know, we have, we have sins of commission. Sins of commission. If I steal something, I've committed a sin. I've stolen something. But also we have sins of omission. That may be our biggest downfall. God opens doors of opportunity for us to do good, to bless people, to help people. And sometimes we're too busy sitting in our recliners doing nothing. Sins of omission. Notice, these goats, these goats were not bad people. Go back to Matthew 7, 21 through 23. Those people were not bad people. They're not the Hitlers. They're not the, uh, you know, uh, Osama bin Ladens of history. Those were good people, had done a lot of good works, but they had not done what they needed to do. They had not been obedient, and they had not been doing what they could have been doing. Both Matthew 7 and right here, Matthew 25, these are sins of omission. Good people who come up short because they have omitted doing what they know they should have been doing. Omitting, doing what they knew they should be doing. Verse chapter 1 of chapter 26. Now it came to pass when Jesus had finished all these sayings. That is his last teaching. His last teaching. Now, Jesus will make a prediction. The rulers will plot and Judas will bargain. We're back to that story 152. This is the very last part of the original 152. We finished supplement to, we're back to story 152, the very last part of it. Matthew 26. Jesus said to his disciples, You know that after two days is the Passover, and the Son of Man will be delivered up to be crucified. Originally, about two years prior, he had hinted. About one year prior, he had hinted a little bit stronger. Six months prior, he had hinted a little bit stronger. Now, he's just telling them, hey, I'm going to be crucified. They knew what that word meant. They had seen crucifixions, no doubt. Verse 3, Then the chief priests, the scribes, and the elders of the people assembled where? At the palace of the high priest, Caiaphas' palace, and plotted to take Jesus by trickery and kill him. But they said, Not during the feast, lest there be an uproar among the people. 
they realize Jesus has got his supporters. His supporters are mainly the Galilean Jews. We can't do it while they're in town. We can't do this while they're around. The Galilean Jews usually, because they had to travel a distance, they were the first people out the door at Amen, okay? As soon as the Feast of Unleavened Bread, the Passover was first, and then they went straight into the Feast of Unleavened Bread, as soon as that last ceremony of the Feast of Unleavened Bread happened, they're out the door, they're headed home. The Jewish leadership says, we've got to wait until that time. Wait until the Galilean Jews are out. Wait until we just have our home people here. We can control them. We can manipulate them. And we will then arrest him, plot against him by trickery, and have him killed by the Romans. Judas... Judas will open up an opportunity that they had not expected. Judas had opened up an opportunity that they had not expected. Keep in mind, they had what? They had tried to kill him before. Go over to John 5, verse 18. John 5, 18. This is about two years before Matthew 26. This is roughly two years before Matthew chapter 26, verse 18 of John 5. Therefore the Jews sought all the more to kill him. This is the Jerusalem leadership. Because he not only broke the Sabbath, in their mind, he actually had not broken the Sabbath. In their mind he had. But also said that God was his father, which is true, making himself equal with God. That's about two years before Matthew chapter 26. Go with me over to John 11. This is roughly eight to ten weeks before Matthew chapter 26. John 11, verse 49. And one of them, Caiaphas, being high priest that year, said to them, You know nothing at all. Or do you consider that it is expedient for us that one man should die for the people and not the whole nation should perish? Now this he did not say on his own authority, but being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the nation and not for that nation only, but also that he would gather together in one Jew and Gentile, the children of God who were scattered abroad. Then from that day on, they plotted to put him to death. Therefore, Jesus no longer walked openly among the Jews. That's eight to ten weeks before Matthew chapter 26. But Judas, Judas is going to throw a monkey wrench into their original plans. He's going to change their plans. Look at verse 14 of Matthew chapter 26. Then one of the twelve called Judas Iscariot went to the chief priest and said, What are you willing to give me if I deliver him to you? And they counted out to him thirty pieces of silver. 
So from that time, he sought opportunity to betray him. Go with me over to Mark chapter 14. Mark chapter 14. Mark 14, verse 20. We're jumping ahead a little bit, but I wanted to read this with you. Jesus at the Passover meal, where he instituted the Lord's Supper, he said, It is one of the twelve who dips with me in the dish. The Son of Man indeed goes just as it is written of him. But woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It had been good for that man if he had never been born. How many babies do you know named Judas? You didn't name your two babies Judas. You didn't name that little boy Judas. Even in the Jewish world today, they don't name their babies Judas. You might name a mean dog Judas, okay? You got a mean dog, you might name him Judas. But that name is cursed around the world. What happened with Judas? What happened with Judas? It says that Satan entered his heart. It says that Satan entered his heart. How many have seen the famous painting of Jesus knocking at the door? It's a very famous painting. How many, by a show of hands, have ever seen that famous painting of, of Jesus knocking at the door? Do you remember what's odd about that door? What's it, what is it missing? What's that door, when the artist painted that picture, what is that door missing? I'll give you a hint. It starts with an H and it ends with an andle. Handle, okay. There's no doorknob. Go and look at that picture. Google it tonight and look at that picture. There's no, no doorknob on the outside. Have you ever seen a door without a doorknob on the outside? What's that saying? It says that we have to decide if we're going to open up the door to our heart to the Lord. Likewise, we have to decide when Satan comes knocking, if we're going to open up the door to our heart to him. Satan has no power of himself. Remember for the sermon on Revelation last Sunday? And we said that, uh, you remember, death, four horsemen, remember, four horsemen? One was death. Death comes because of what? Conflict. Who causes the conflict? It's that horse number two. What does horse number two? Red, symbolizing who? Satan. And it says that that horseman has been given power. Satan has no power of himself. We give it to him. You and I. We give Him the power. We open the door. 
We open the door to our hearts. There's no doorknob on the outside. He can't force his way in. He can't force his way in, and the Lord will not force his way in. The Lord could, because he's the Lord, but he will not. He wants you and I to make that decision. Will we open the door to the Lord? Will we open the door to Satan? What will we do? How will we handle it? Judas plots with the leadership and they decide on 30 coins, 30 pieces of silver. That was the going price for a slave in that world 2,000 years ago. Isn't it interesting? That was prophesied. Did the Jewish leadership go back and read the Old Testament and say, well, we got to pay 30 pieces, we got to pay 30 coins, we better pay 30 coins. They didn't go back and do that. But God knew they would. God knew they would. And they sold, Judas sold Jesus for 30 coins. 30 coins. Let's see if we have any questions. No questions. No, no, no questions. Let's continue on. We've got just four minutes. So why did Judas betray Jesus? We know that Judas wasn't a robot. Jesus would not have picked Judas to be one of the twelve if he didn't have some good qualities. You know, that would have been a bad reflection on Jesus if he had picked some scoundrel. Judas was not a scoundrel from the beginning. So why did he do it? We may never know the real reason. Was he jealous of Jesus? Of Jesus' position? Of Jesus' popularity? Of, of, the, of the common people's acceptance of Jesus? Of Jesus' power? Of Jesus' abilities? You know, he had done, he had went out with the other eleven. They had done miracles. Well, I can do miracles. Of course, he was doing it through the power of God that was given to him by Jesus. So was he jealous of Jesus? Was he disgruntled over what happened about Mary's perfume? Remember John 11, or excuse me, John 12? Got one chapter off there, apologize. Mary, you know, is applying that perfume to the body of Jesus, and, and Judas says, why wasn't it given, uh, sold and given to the poor, help the poor? He didn't really want to help the poor. He wanted more money in the money bag. Because why? Because he was stealing did he steal initially? I don't think the other 11 would have put him into the position of treasurer if he was not honest, at least at the beginning. Because remember, they've got a guy already in the, in the 12 who knows how to handle money. That's Matthew, tax collector. So was he disgruntled over what happened about Mary's perfume? Was he impatient and, and just wanted to force Jesus to institute the new kingdom? 
You know, come on, Jesus, you're dragging your feet. Just do it. Let's do it now. Was he disillusioned with Jesus' emphasis on a spiritual kingdom? Hey, I got into this three years ago because I thought we were going to be the, the big guys. I thought we were going to have a physical kingdom. I thought we were going to be like David, King David. Was he just trying to turn a fast buck? Did he want just the money? I can't really say that because what does he do with the money after he throws it back at him? Was he trying to save himself from arrest? Hey, Jesus and all of us are going to be arrested. He is talking about him. He's going to be crucified. I don't want to have my body on a tree. I will save my skin. Was he just trying to save himself from arrest and death? Answer, we don't know. We don't know. The key there is he allowed Satan to enter his heart. Twice it says Satan entered his heart. Twice it says Satan entered his heart. No way would Satan enter his heart unless Judas opened the door and let him in. And he did. In the same way for all of us today, if we open the door, if we give him just an inch, he'll take a mile. Okay. He'll take it all. Okay. Coming up Sunday, Lord willing, we will get into story number 153. It's up here. Story number 153, we've got a lot to cover. We're going to be looking at the Passover. Uh, we're going to looking at disciples having a, a fuss about who's the greatest. Uh, we're going to be looking at the seating arrangement. This is a famous painting. The guy got it wrong, so wrong. That's not the way they did it back then. That's a European arrangement. Jesus was not a European. He was a Jew. Okay, it'll be more like that kind of arrangement. Very low table. Notice the cushions around. The U-shaped table. That's the kind of table that the Last Supper slash Passover feast was going to be held at. We'll look at that. Also, we'll look at what constitutes the Passover meal. We'll look at Jesus washing the feet of his disciples. We'll look about how they found the place of the upper room. And then we will look at what goes on in that upper room. So that's all coming up, Lord willing, on Sunday morning. If you don't have those lessons, come up here and grab them. Uh, we're out of time. The light is shining. So I've got to shut.